You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources and is being recorded on the 16th of June for the listening week that begins the 17th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. With Juneteenth on the near horizon, I'll begin with an article from TheRoot.com written by Jessica Washington, published on the 15th, Juneteenth, 2023. The true story behind our newest federal holiday. The Root is doing a deep dive on all things Juneteenth this year. Here's how the Texan-based celebration began. As exciting as having an extra day off work can be, sometimes we get a little fuzzy on the details behind some of our favorite holidays. That's especially true with the newest federal holiday, Juneteenth. So what exactly are we celebrating this weekend? Allow the route to break it down for you. While it's a common misconception that Juneteenth is the day slavery officially ended in the United States, that's not quite right. On June 19, 1865, Major General Gordon Granger proclaimed that all enslaved people in Texas were free in accordance with a, quote, proclamation from the Executive of the United States. Naturally, the proclamation he's referring to is the Emancipation Proclamation issued by President Lincoln, freeing all enslaved people within the Confederacy. Only folks who knew their history might be a tad confused by the date. Granger wasn't just a few months late, writes historian and The Root co-founder Henry Louise Gates, Jr., The Emancipation Proclamation itself, ending slavery in the Confederacy, at least on paper, had taken effect two and a half years before and in the interim. All right, so if Lincoln had already freed the slaves and the Civil War had been over for months, why did it take until June of 1865 for enslaved people in Texas to be freed? Gates writes, It would be easy to think so in our world of immediate communication, but as Granger and the 1800 bluecoats under him soon found out, news traveled slowly in Texas. It wasn't until June that the Trans-Mississippi Army, which held Texas, surrendered. And even after the Army surrendered, enslaved people in Texas weren't free to just leave, Enslavers often waited to tell people of Major General Gordon's proclamation, and even in cases where they were aware, many were punished for leaving. It would be months before the Freedmen's Bureau arrived in Texas to help free the remaining enslaved people. And it would be six months from the initial proclamation before the 13th Amendment was ratified, declaring slavery unconstitutional parentheses, except as a punishment for a crime. As black Texans spread throughout the country, the tradition of celebrating Juneteenth as a day of freedom spread with them. The first push to make Juneteenth the federal holiday began in the mid-90s. In 1997, Senator Trent Lott introduced a joint resolution commemorating, quote, 
Juneteenth Independence Day. The calls to make Juneteenth a federal holiday grew in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's killings at the hands of police in 2020. And in 2021, President Joe Biden signed a law making Juneteenth the federal holiday. So, as you're celebrating Juneteenth this weekend, feel free to share the true meaning of this Texan holiday turned National Day of Recognition. Second article from The Root on this topic, I'll read um, edited pieces of because there's some duplication. This one's written by Amira Castilla, published on June 3rd. Cheat sheet, five things you must know about Juneteenth. Number one, the Emancipation, pardon me, the Emancipation Proclamation. In September 1862, during the Civil War, which started in 1861, President Abraham Lincoln introduced the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation was a radical action that gave Confederate states only 100 days to rejoin the Union or else those who were enslaved would be declared free. The Confederacy refused to budge, so on January 1, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation went into effect, releasing over 3 million people from slavery. Number two, the last slaves in the Confederacy freed. Although the Emancipation Proclamation freed those who were enslaved in the Confederacy, those who remained were not informed that they were free until almost two years later. Union soldiers led by Major General Gordon Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas on June 19, 1865. He had a, he handwrote a note called General Order No. 3 to officially announce their freedom, and it states the following. The people of Texas are informed that, in accordance with the proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves, and the connection heretofore existing between them becomes that between employer and hired labor. Number three, no, not all slaves were freed. The Emancipation Proclamation did not free everyone who was enslaved in America as more enslaved people lived in the North. Interesting, right? However, the proclamation did lead the way for the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery across America. After Lincoln's assassination, the amendment was adopted in December 1865. And before Juneteenth becomes a holiday, in 1980, Texas became the first state to officially make Juneteenth a holiday. With black people celebrating the day, they were a step toward freedom in the United States. Juneteenth was made a federal holiday in 2021 by President Biden. Number five, Opal Lee, the grandmother of Juneteenth. Opal Lee is known as the grandmother of Juneteenth as she is credited with pushing legislation to make Juneteenth a federal holiday. She created a petition that received over a million signatures and walked from Fort Worth, Texas to Washington, D.C. to bring awareness to her cause. She believed that Juneteenth should be recognized nationally because the day that freed the last slaves would have never happened without help from people across America. She was successful being present in 2021 when President Biden made June 19th an official holiday. 
In February 2023, she became the only the second black American to have her portrait hung in the Texas State House in honor of her persistence to make the holiday happen. Still reading from The Root, written by Jessica Washington, this posted on the 16th. Ray Lewis III's young son of the Baltimore Ravens, Ray Lewis, has passed away. The family of Ray Lewis III, son of Hall of Famer Ray Lewis, passed away at 28 years old, according to a post from his brother, who said, Really can't believe I'm even typing this, but R.I.P. Big Brother, a true angel, I pray you are at peace now. I know how much you were really hurt. The exact details of his death are not public at this time, and his father, Ray Lewis, who played for the Baltimore Ravens for 17 years, does not appear to have spoken publicly about his passing yet. Next, some information on food. And this is still reading from The Root. But I'm having trouble finding the author's name. It says here by G.O. Media Studios for Explore Asheville. And it was published on the 14th. An Asheville powerhouse chef digs into the roots of black Appalachian cuisine. Ashley Shanti unearths the ingredients and updates the techniques of Afrolachian food, including some good hot fish. When envisioning Appalachia, Misty Mountains, Bluegrass Bands, and the writings of Charles Fraser may spring to mind. But what about Afrolachia? Coined in the 1990s by the black Appalachian poet Frank X. Walker, this portmanteau refers to the distinct traditions of African Americans living in the mountains that run parallel to most of the eastern seaboard. Giving a name to this community in a region where residents are still 80% white, Walker fought against black erasure by reminding us of the prodigious African-American presence alongside Scotch-Irish, German, and Native American influences. And where that presence can be best experienced is on the plate and on the palate in Asheville, North Carolina. Here, Ashley Shanti has evolved into the de facto author of modern Afrolachian cuisine. The chef and certified sommelier has been behind the stove in many other places, from a gap year in Nairobi, to working as a cook in Charleston and Houston, to competing in Top Chef's 19th season in L.A. But it's Asheville where her favorite flavors collide, and that's become her home. In her words... Afrolachian cuisine recognizes the African-American contributions that helped shape the foodways of the region. In fact, many of the dishes traditionally thought of as Appalachian, like greasy beans and sour corn, can be credited to the presence of black enslaved people who passed through North Carolina pre- and post-Civil War. Southern plantation owners in South Carolina would send enslaved black people up the Drover's Road to raise their livestock in Tennessee and western North Carolina, a journey that navigated right through Asheville. Today, that same thoroughfare is immortalized 
by bronze hog statues at the city's urban trail station. Then, after the Civil War, Asheville became a popular place for black people leaving the Deep South to settle. In 1895, the Young Men's Institute opened here, providing the black community with free gymnasium access, library, cultural events, and educational services. Dubbed The Block, the YMI spurred the growth of Asheville's East End, a hub for black entrepreneurship. In fact, it was in this very neighborhood that Ashley Shanti held her first job as chef de cuisine of Ben on Eagle. That's spelled B-E-N-N-E. Perhaps it's pronounced Benet. An eatery celebrated for its lively fusion of Appalachian and West African flavors. In 2020, Shanti left her post at Benet to start her own Asheville Enterprise, a pop-up called Good Hot Fish. The endeavor is, quote, a nod to the seafood shacks and fish camps I grew up visiting and eventually cooking in as a teen, she says. Even though I'm the only chef in my family, frying fish was a means of income for us, almost like a birthright. Making cameos in local restaurants and bars, including Jetty Ray's Oyster House, Chanty creates a vibe coastal and unfussy, with her fan favorites like cabbage pancakes and buttermilk britches, composed of dried beans in a buttermilk cream sauce. Mm, yum. Making special appearances on the rotating menu. Though the pop-up is partially an homage to her childhood in Waterfront, Virginia, Chanty credits her grandmother, raised on the state's western Appalachian side, as her other great culinary influence. Passing along the flavors of her own upbringing, Shanti's grandma taught her how to pickle veggies, dry shuck beans on a wood stove, and hang dry yard onions in the morning sun. These techniques are so ingrained in me, says Shanti, so naturally this is the lens with which I cook. The Afrolachian food ethic is very use what you have and live off the land, Dishes are tailored to indigenous ingredients like sochan and dandelions growing wild in a field, which might end up in a, quote, mess of greens to forest gems like ramps and morals. What's unique about this type of cuisine is its close connection to nature, allowing the flora and fauna to define it at any given moment, describes Shanti. The quintessential Afrolachian table is anchored by humble ingredients based on what's available. Protein might include game like rabbit or quail, or stewed soup beans with bits of ham, alongside a home-style starch like cast iron cornbread with a side of sorghum molasses. Acidic condiments like dilly beans, chow chow, parentheses, a pickled relish made of green tomatoes, cabbage, onions, and peppers, or sweet and spicy kudzu jelly, a spread made out of its flower blossoms. Then cut the richness and balance it all out. Whether cooking in Africa, Hollywood, or Asheville, Shanti has always seen food as a great unifier. She says, growing up, that's what initially piqued my interest in cooking and hospitality, 
We really all eat the same, and I want Good Hot Fish to be that unifier with delicious, approachable, memory-evoking food. She has faith and pride in black resilience and believes food fuels the fight to be seen, citing her own Asheville favorites like Daddy D's on Wheels, Soul Food Truck, Bunnit Mobile Hot Dog Cart, and Tamaria Sims's Soulful Simone Farms Floral and Herb Nursery. Wherever we are, we bring our storytelling, food traditions, crops, she says, our stories of survival, building community, using the food around us. Black people have called these mountains home for centuries, and we're not going anywhere. Next, I'm picking up an article from the Bergen Record, which is a newspaper out of New Jersey, North New Jersey, pardon me, North Jersey. At any rate, it's titled Juneteenth and Reparations. How can we empower black New Jersey residents so they can thrive? This is written by Ryan P. Haygood and Jean-Pierre Brutus, and it was published on the 15th. Our multiracial democracy is in crisis. Voter suppression is rampant. Affirmative action is on the chopping block. Police continue to kill black people, and the entrenched racial wealth gap persists, all while a resurgent white nationalism shamelessly rears its ugly head. To add insult to injury, a concerted effort is afoot to suppress the very knowledge needed to address these harms. Cultivating a hostile know-nothingness about the legacy of slavery and the white supremacy shaping this precarious moment. Now more than ever, it is crucial that we understand our history and how it led us here so we can finally get serious about the act of repair. That's about to happen in New Jersey. You wouldn't be alone if you thought of slavery as a southern atrocity. But as the Equal Justice Initiative lays out in its report titled The Transatlantic Slave Trade, reinforcing long-standing scholarship, the Atlantic states were very much reliant upon slavery. In fact, New Jersey was so deeply embroiled in slavery that a New Jersey historian has dubbed it the Slave State of the North. New Jersey was, indeed, a slave society. It started in the mid-17th century, when the British, pardon me, when the British took over the colony from the Dutch. In a racialized system of land distribution, white settlers were given 150 acres of land to get them started, and an additional 150 for every enslaved person they brought with them, a slavery bonus of sorts. To reinforce the burgeoning racial divide, the slave codes that followed barred both enslaved and free black people from owning land and governed almost all areas of black life, just as in a southern state. By the mid-18th century, slavery became the colony's primary form of labor, including mining, agriculture, construction work, and iron-making. When New Jersey finally abolished slavery in 1866, the last northern state to do so, White supremacy continued by other institutional means. New Jersey established an early form of sharecropping called the cottager system, 
which was followed by racially, me, racially restrictive covenants, redlining, and separate and unequal accommodations. With the ending of Jim Crow in the 1960s, the Garden State, along with the rest of the nation, entered a new era of structural racism marked by mass incarceration, environmental racism, the school-to-prison pipeline, GI Bill discrimination, predatory lending, and credit discrimination. Today, the Garden State, though one of the most diverse in the nation, has some of the worst racial inequities in the country, including a staggering $300,000 racial wealth gap and the largest 12 to 1 Pardon me, that's the largest adult, 12 to 1, and youth, 18 to 1, black to white incarceration disparities. This is not a coincidence. How could generations of deeply embedded and legally sanctioned racism not result in present-day inequality? In some ways, the fact that New Jersey is a northern state that views itself as more enlightened than the South that we have crowned ourselves with a progressive halo has contributed to forestalling our reckoning. But the time has come, and the time demands that we say the word reparations. On Juneteenth, the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice will launch the first-of-its-kind council to finally confront and repair our often-overlooked history of slavery and its lasting impact on the contemporary life of black New Jersey residents. The New Jersey Reparations Council, a unique collaboration of state and national experts, will embark upon a two-year study of slavery and its aftermath in New Jersey. With input from the public, the council will recommend bold, forward-thinking, and reparative policies to be publicized in a comprehensive report that can inform a state-based reparations task force, should pending legislation be passed to establish one, or stand on its own as a blueprint for New Jersey's work of reparative justice. Reparations have happened before. Through the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, the U.S. government paid reparations to Japanese Americans incarcerated in World War II prison camps, Nazi Germany paid reparations to Jewish victims of the Holocaust, and the United States rebuilt Europe through the Marshall Plan after World War II. Evanston, Illinois, launched the first modern reparations program for black people. Asheville, North Carolina, hmm. <clears throat> Evanston, Illinois, launched the first modern, oh, pardon me, repeat, for black people, and Asheville, there we go, North Carolina, is not far behind. The New York legislature just passed a reparations commission bill, and the California Reparations Task Force is scheduled to release its final report by the beginning of July. Still, reparations are a complex and big undertaking. What form do they take? Who should get them? This will be up to the Council after it studies New Jersey's unique historical and current landscape. As convener, the Institute is encouraging the Council to think boldly and imaginatively and to propose solutions that are commensurate with the enduring harms 
black people in New Jersey continue to face from slavery and the anti-black policies that followed. On the table are not only cash payments for the harm of lost earnings and wealth, but larger investments in black communities that will create lasting societal change. Policies that will be an answer to the question, what will it take to fundamentally empower black New Jersey residents so they can be not only compensated but invested in so they can thrive? As throughout the country, New Jersey's racial disparities are not a result of individual behaviors, but of generations' worth of compounded, policy-driven oppression. The remedy for generations of policy-driven inequities must be policy-driven repair that will build a more equitable, stronger New Jersey. No one is saying this work is easy, but New Jersey and the country cannot come close to fulfilling its promise as a multiracial democracy until this work is done. Once again, this was an opinion piece written by Ryan P. Haygood, and he is the president and CEO of the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. The co-author, Jean-Pierre Brutus, is senior counsel in the Economic Justice Program at the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice. Next two articles bring news from Texas. Good news. This first one comes from CNN. It was posted Wednesday, June 14th, written by Kainita Ayer. Texas representative becomes first black woman Democrat to play in congressional baseball game. Texas rep Jasmine Crockett broke new ground Wednesday night as the first black woman Democrat to play in the congressional baseball games' 114-year history. I'm playing today for all the little black girls with big dreams whether those dreams are on the baseball field or in the halls of Congress, said Crockett in a statement to CNN before the game. As the first black woman Democrat to play in the congressional baseball game, I want to show those girls that if I can do it, they can do it, and probably a lot better, she added. Republicans defeated Democrats 16-6, to securing the team's third consecutive victory, the bipartisan event has been a Washington tradition since 1909 that raises funds for local charities. This year, lawmakers are supporting local chapters of the Boys and Girls Club, Nationals Philosophies, the charitable arm of the Washington Nationals baseball team, and the Washington Literacy Center. While the Texas Congresswoman broke new ground for the Democrats this year, former Rep. Mia Love the first black Republican woman elected to Congress, has previously participated in the game. U.S. Representatives William Timmons, Republican of South Carolina, and Pete Aguilar, Democrat California, are pictured here in action during the annual Congressional Baseball Game for Charity at National Parks in Washington, June 14th. Next, another opinion piece. This comes from the Washington Post, written by Karen Tumulti. And it is posted on the 14th. America's big cities have seen a crime surge, not Dallas, thanks to its mayor, Dateline Dallas. 
The tribulations that have swept America's big cities over the past few years have been nearly biblical in scale. A pandemic, racial strife, rising homelessness, a surge in violent crime. Which is why municipal elections across the map, in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and Philadelphia, among others, have been especially contentious and ideological. Dallas, however, stands as an exception. Last month, Democratic Mayor Eric Johnson, 47, cruised unopposed to a second term, marking the first time that had happened here since 1967. Parentheses, the last mayor to be re-elected without an opponent was a towering figure in city history whose name, by weird coincidence, was also Eric Johnson. I'm glancing to see if that's, I think that's spelled, it is spelled differently, but without the H in the second one. In a recent poll by the Garen Hart Yang Research Group, Johnson's approval rating stood at a gravity-defying 77%, with 54% saying their city is headed in the right direction. Johnson's is a remarkable personal story. A precocious kid from a rough West Dallas neighborhood, whose drive and intelligence so impressed his first-grade teacher that she helped wrangle a scholarship for him at an elite private school where he thrived. He went on to earn three Ivy League degrees. Returning home, he nearly he served nearly a decade in the state House of Representatives as a progressive Democrat known for championing civil rights. He led a successful campaign to remove an offensive and historically inaccurate plaque asserting that the Civil War was, quote, not a rebellion, nor was its underlying cause to sustain, pardon me, to sustain slavery. Remove that from the wall near his office in the state capitol. Johnson was expected to run for Congress at some point, but he surprised pretty much everyone by making a late entry instead into a nine-candidate, nonpartisan mayoral race in 2019, with support from the city's powerful business community, notably billionaire oilman and mayor Republican donor Ray Hunt, who was so dazzled by Johnson the first time they met that he decided on the spot to back him. He beat a veteran city council member in the runoff. Yet, in his early days as mayor, few would have predicted that Johnson would have a glide path to re-election, His political skills were not as well-honed as you might like, said Southern Methodist University political scientist Cal Jolson. His first two years were very rocky. He clashed with members of the city council and even took the highly unorthodox step of endorsing some of their opponents in the 2021 election. Johnson, the city's second black mayor, waged a campaign to fire the city's first black female police chief, you Renee Hall, who, on her way out, pronounced herself offended and exhausted by Johnson's attacks. His battles with city manager T.C. Broadnax, whose office under Dallas's system of government holds more day-to-day governing power than the mayor's, were epic. What explains Johnson's success amid all this was one issue, his unbending stance on crime. When Johnson took office, violent crime was rising in Dallas to levels not seen since the 1990s. 
And then it got even worse once the pandemic hit, Johnson told me. He went on, I think it actually required a slightly different skill set than what is normally required. And that skill set really revolves mostly around a certain amount of conviction, around some principles, and being willing to hold the line on some things and withstand some direct hits politically. Those political hits came during the racial reckoning that followed the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020. As in other cities, there were calls in Dallas to, quote, defund the police, and the city council was considering trimming the budget by cutting police overtime by $7 million. Johnson not only opposed the idea, but also made a counterproposal to boost the number of officers on the street and to pay for it by reducing what he called the bloated salaries of the highest paid city officials instead. Hashtag defund the bureaucracy, he tweeted. Black Lives Matter protesters marched on his house multiple times, and the city council resoundingly voted down his salary cut proposal. Still, Johnson believes he made his point. The defund the police movement, despite what people in some cases now want to pretend like was happening at the time, there are people now who want to pretend like that wasn't actually a real thing. It was a very real thing, he told me. And if we're just being honest about it, my fellow mayors, a lot of them across the country, bowed to that political pressure and decided to make across-the-board cuts to their police departments. Johnson also demanded a more aggressive strategy for combating violent crime, which was delivered by his new police chief, Eddie Garcia, who took over the department in early 2021. Parts of it involved tactics such as deploying violence interrupters to resolve street-level conflicts and guide those who need them to social services and cleaning up blighted areas such as trash-filled vacant lots and dilapidated buildings where crime can breed. The plan that Garcia developed working with criminologists at the University of Texas at San Antonio also refocused policing in Dallas on hot spots. They divided the city into 101,000 microgrids, areas roughly the size of two football fields side by side, and discovered that crime was heavily concentrated in relatively few, an apartment complex here or a nightclub parking lot there. Just 50 of these hotspots accounted for almost 10% of violent street crime in Dallas. These high-risk areas where the department sent police cars to sit with their emergency lights on or where 10 officer crime response teams were dispatched. This approach can be polarizing, given that hotspots tend to be in communities of color, but statistics suggest it is working. Of the nation's largest cities, Dallas appears to be the only one to buck the trend of rising crime in each of the past two years. Statistics for murders, rapes, and aggravated assaults have gone down. What's more, the Dallas Morning News noted, the number of arrests last year dropped by 19%. Skeptics will note that crime numbers are volatile and that different jurisdictions collect them differently, making comparisons across cities imprecise. 
And in the early months of this year, the tally in one category, homicides, has ticked up again in Dallas. But Johnson, who obsesses about data, says he is confident that the trend is real and that it is holding. He said, I'm either the luckiest mayor in the United States, or this stuff actually works. Next, reading from the Headway Initiative, as we started last week, from the New York Times. The elusive quest for black progress. Many measures of black achievement in the U.S. have stalled or reversed. A series from Headway looks back at historical gains for their lessons today. This is written by Matthew Johnson, Matthew, pardon me, that's Matthew Thompson, who is Headway's editor. Racial inequality has been a focus of his coverage for more than two decades. This was posted May 26th. Life expectancy is one of the oldest and surest indicators we have of both human suffering and human progress. Wars, famines, the 1918 flu, vaccines, pasteurization, rising crop yields, so many events over time are encoded in the line of life expectancy, but its overall astonishing ascent is among the best cases for 20th century humankind that can be made. I have been staring for months at a graph of life expectancy for black and white Americans from 1900 to 2017. It tells a story of persistent, if uneven, progress in closing the gap between these groups. It began to reach a promising convergence in the 2010s. Then the COVID pandemic began, life expectancy plunged, and graphs of its decline started going viral. Decades of progress in extending human lives have been reversed. Life expectancy for black and white Americans has diverged again, falling back to where it was in 1995. A gap of nearly five years of expected life now separates us. For black Americans, this pattern, years of progress achieved and then erased, is common enough that the idea of racial progress in the U.S. is sometimes called a myth. Many of the indicators we use to track human advancement are particularly stuck for black Americans or are moving in the wrong direction. Our diminished life expectancy is not only the product of losing many older Americans to the pandemic, but also the consequence of maternal mortality, of children's deaths from gunshots, and of car crashes, all of which disproportionately affect black people. But a striking narrative of black progress once captivated the world's attention. In 1900, W.E.B. Du Bois went to the Paris World's Fair to contribute to a showcase called the Exhibit, pardon me, the Exhibit of American Negroes. In the European imagination at that time, the black American experience was still defined by images of slavery, the Civil War, and the grim aftermath. Du Bois and the exhibition's organizers wanted to present a more current image of black strivers. It would show them still struggling against the Herculean machinery of white supremacy, but achieving great strides in literacy, business, land ownership, wealth, and in pursuit of happiness in all its forms. 
It wasn't surprising to Du Bois that black people, who had been treated in the U.S. as property, would be at a great disadvantage in a country built around the interests of white property owners. What was surprising, and what Du Bois tried to illuminate, as Britt Rusert and Whitney Battle Baptiste chronicle in their book about this exhibit, was the progress black America was making despite the powerful and deep-rooted forces trying to resist it. In the 1920s, two decades after he presented at the Paris Exposition, Du Bois visited the Greenwood Business District of Tulsa, Oklahoma, to witness one of the country's preeminent beacons of black economic success. As the founding editor of The Crisis, the magazine of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Du Bois was near the peak of his influence. He considered Greenwood a harbinger, a living example of the possibilities inherent in black America. Two months after his visit, white Tulsans burned Greenwood to the ground. When he returned to Greenwood in 1926, Du Bois found that the massacre had not dimmed the community's spirit. But he was beginning to confront the limits of black progress, starting to ask questions that would lead to his eventual break with the NAACP and decades later with the U.S. itself. We started Headway, our initiative to look at the world's challenges through the lens of progress, with a series, pardon me, with a series called Hindsight, asking what lessons can be gleaned from past successes and failures As we've reported on subjects like homelessness, gentrification, and displacement, the restraints on black progress have become a recurring theme. So we took an interest in a series of reports released in February by Columbia's Lipman Center for Journalism and Civil and Human Rights, analyzing how racial inequality has persisted, and in some cases grown, across generations in the United States. The Lipman Center commissioned scholars in five different areas, education, health care, housing, criminal justice, and economics, to follow trails from the beginning of the 20th century to the present day. The Lippmann Center gave us early access to these reports, so I have gotten to sit with their analysis for several months and to talk at length with the authors. Near the beginning of the health report, a graph shows black and white American life expectancy from 1900 to 2017. I was struck not only by what it showed, the gradual narrowing of the gap between them, but by what it didn't, the plunge that would soon follow. What the authors of these reports found partially echoes the journey Du Bois chronicled in Paris in 1900. In each of the areas the scholars considered black Americans achieved notable and measurable improvements in our material conditions. But at nearly every turn, those achievements were fought, threatened, and sometimes erased, often with violence, as in Greenwood. Over time, the narrative of progress that Du Bois presented in the American Negroes exhibit becomes far more complicated With hindsight, I asked readers to test their knowledge of progress with a survey that he has put on the website of the New York Times. He's asked these questions of the readers. In one year, the number of black farmers reached nearly 950,000, 14% of all U.S. farmers. In the other, there were fewer than 49,000 black farmers. 
1.4% of all U.S. farmers. And then he gives two possibilities, 1920, 2017, for which is which. As we found in our inaugural hindsight exploration, indicators like these are imperfect measures pardon me, imperfect measures of messy human efforts to make progress. In the century that he lived, Du Bois witnessed firsthand the complex realities underlying his data. Among his visualizations for the Paris exhibit was one that depicts black illiteracy shrinking decade over decade from 99% in 1860 to 67.27% in 1890. He knew what it took to achieve these gains. In The Souls of Black Folk, Du Bois recounted his experiences as a young teacher in rural Tennessee. The demands of crops and babies made the seeming luxury of education for children a challenge. He wrote, It was a hard thing to dig a living out of rocky side hill. I'm going to pop back up to those two years before we get too far away from that idea. 1920 and 2017, percentage of farmers. The number of overall farmers in the U.S. has shrunk heavily from 1920, but now there's a far smaller proportion of black farmers than there was then. Beyond broader economic factors in agriculture, targeted harms like loan discrimination and violent theft have heavily dispossessed black farmers of their land over decades. Picking up the article, yet when he began his lessons in a humble log schoolhouse, nearly 30 students showed up. Du Bois returned to the village some years later. His favorite student had died, seemingly of overwork. But Doc Burke, one of the farmers with whom he stayed on the weekends, had expanded his still-mortgaged farm by 25 acres. The Burks held, pardon me, the Burks held a hundred acres, but they were still in debt. Indeed, the gaunt father who toiled night and day would scarcely be happy out of debt, being so used to it. Some day he must stop, for his massive frame is showing decline. That was a quote from Du Bois. Over the years, the conditions of the rural black community that Du Bois had gotten to know as a young teacher improved in visible ways, but the costs of these slender gains were visible too, and every advancement was fragile. He wrote, My log schoolhouse was gone. In its place stood progress, and progress, I understand, is necessarily ugly. Du Bois died in Accra, Ghana on 8 August 27, 1963, the day before the march on Washington. He had lived to witness the emergence of the black civil rights movement as a force capable of transforming the nation, but he had also grown increasingly pessimistic about how far black Americans could advance in systems that had been founded on their exploitation. The NAACP had formally committed itself to the aim of integration, but Du Bois saw rising hostility toward black Americans, and he had also seen firsthand the power of black institutions to educate black students. He had turned from the possibilities inherent in the black American nation within a nation toward the possibilities represented in the new independent nations in Africa. 
Late in his life, he joined the Communist Party and left the United States for Ghana, where he became a citizen. But those images Du Bois brought to Paris with their narrative of black American advancement have found new life. Over the past few years, a movement of scholars and artists have tried to recapture the spirit of Du Bois's quest to chart black progress. Since 2021, hundreds of tweets have been logged to the Twitter hashtag, hashtag Du Bois Challenge, and I'll spell that in case you're not sure, that's D-U-B-O-I-S-C-H-A-L-L-E-N-G-E, hashtag Du Bois Challenge which invites people to recreate the visualizations from the American Negroes exhibition using modern methods and tools. In 2020, the artist Gina Valentine exhibited a series of images updating the data contained in Du Bois's visualizations, some of which we featured in these articles. What struck Ms. Valentine about making these images, she told me in an interview, was the way they reflect not abstract data, but the deeply human effort underpinning it. There's an artist behind this, she said. There's someone who was gathering the data. There's someone who created the illustrations. Is 100% subjective. In the months ahead, we'll be following the trails left by Columbia's scholars for movements toward black progress progress in economics, education, health care, housing, safety, and justice. For this exploration, which we're calling Progress Revisited, we'll be looking forward and backward at once, trying to find the exemplars of the past and their lessons and legacies in the present days. The questions we're asking and which we pose to you are these. Are we doing better than our ancestors? Are we building on their best accomplishments? Are we learning from their worst mistakes? We began with Victor Luckerson's revisitation of Greenwood, once the pinnacle of what a black community could achieve in the U.S. Now we consider what lessons that community holds for places like Anacostia, the last mostly black neighborhood in Washington, D.C., For much of the past year, through reporting as well as a series of events and conversations we've convened, we've been talking with residents from Anacostia about their lives and prospects in a changed and a changing city. I was there again with members of the Headway team on May 20th for the Anacostia Riverfront Festival, where we spoke with scores of long-timers and newcomers alike about the past, present, and future of their community. Their hopes and fears about what's ahead for Anacostia underscore why progress can be so elusive for black Americans. Greenwood was an economically successful black community nearly undone by lethal violence. Anacostia's black community could be undone by the area's economic success. Some might call it progress. Du Bois might just call it ugly. I won't have time to read that complete article this week, but I have queued it up for next week. And we have the sections are titled. First, its title is, Can Anacostia Build a Bridge Without Displacing Its People? First, what's the purpose of a park? 
Second, a bridge. That's not for us. Third, building on a promise. Fourth, first, buy land, then build houses. Fifth, on the razor's edge of gentrification. And then at the end they ask, how will the 11th Street Bridge Park change Anacostia? And the teaser at the beginning of the article. What's the purpose of a park? In 2016, Farouk Bey moved into a one-bedroom apartment in a red-brick row house in Washington, D.C. A Cleveland native, Mr. Bay, first came to the city to study theater at Howard University. He left after college and bounced around, but he missed the city. When a job running a black box theater in the Anacostia Arts Center came his way, he jumped at it. The nonprofit that ran the Arts Center rented out several affordable apartments in the neighborhood in southeast Washington, where Mr. Bay settled into, oh, pardon me, and Mr. Bay settled into one. He painted accent walls, sky blue in the living room, periwinkle in the kitchen. He could imagine staying a while. Mr. Bay loved Anacostia. It felt like a small town nestled in a big city. Like Mr. Bay, most of the people who lived there were black, and he relished the feeling of walking out the door and into a black community. He took his dog on long walks in the park that ran in a narrow ribbon along the Anacostia River. He'd walk down the waterfront trail and across a new four-lane bridge at 11th Street, lingering to enjoy the breeze and the view from the wide pedestrian walkway or the overlooks built on the piers of an old highway that had once spanned the river. A year or so ago, Mr. Bay read an article about a plan to build an elevated park in those, pardon me, on those salvaged piers. The 11th Street Bridge Park would repurpose the old infrastructure to create a new civic space, a park and cultural hub, connecting the wealthy, predominantly white neighborhoods of Navy Yard and Capitol Hill with historic Anacostia and Fairlawn, both of which are majority black and low income. The idea stirred up conflicting feelings in Mr. Bay, the project would open the riverfront for swimming and kayaking and give people from the neighborhoods a place to meet and hang out. I was like, okay, this is such an amazing project, right? It's so dope, he said. But what made the park so amazing also made it an engine for gentrification. And I have time to close with a few book titles suggested from theroot.com. For Juneteenth 2023. First, what is Juneteenth for ages 8 through 12? Breaks down the importance of the holiday to black history and it's illustrated with a 16-page photo insert. Helps bring the story to life. That's on the New York Times best-selling series, What is Juneteenth? Then a 50th anniversary edition of Margaret Walker's Jubilee. In Jubilee, readers meet Vairi, the child of a white plantation owner and his black mistress. Using research she conducted on her own family history, Margaret Walker creates a beautifully written work of historical fiction. 
and Lose Your Mother, A Journey Along the Atlantic Slave Route by Saidia Hartman. For Lose Your Mother, Saidia Hartman traveled along a slave route in Ghana as she tries to reckon with the impact of slavery on black history and the missing pieces of her own family history. And How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith. A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. In How the Word is Passed, author Clint Smith takes readers on a tour of monuments and landmarks across the country as he explores the legacy of slavery in America. And with that, uh, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is brought to you in part by the DAV Charitable Trust empowering veterans to live high-quality lives with respect and dignity. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.